Hello, everybody. This is Mark Lewandowski. Welcome to Mind Your Business. Mind Your Business is all about building your personal capacity. Personal capacity is what is needed for you to grow in your career, make great decisions, and become a person of influence. So sit back and enjoy this content as I share with you insights and stories, examples, and personal challenges designed to do one thing, build your capacity to change your world. Recently, somebody sent me an email and they said, Mark, would you please talk about the five crazy life-changing events that at that time you didn't know how imp- impactful they'd be in your life and what were they and how did they change your life? So I thought about it a little bit and man, it was, it was really amazing to think back on the most life-changing events of my life, the things that really crafted who I am and think about some are heartbreaking Some are heartwarming, and some are just plain business. So I've decided to dedicate this podcast to those five life-changing events. Number one, Gary Logston. You know, the fact Gary Logston is dead, I just decided to use his name because there's not a chance that any of his family members are listening to this because these are not my kind of people. Gary Logston was my coach all the time when I was growing up as a kid. Now, the reason I bring up Gary is because you and I share life experiences that go all the way back to when we were children. You know, it has been said many times that life is like a mosaic painting in which when you look up really close, all the little pieces are different little rocks. When you back up, it becomes the whole picture of your life. One of the most important life-changing events for me was a guy named Gary Logston that coached us in everything, basketball, football, baseball. He loved it. And his son was the all-star of our team. I mean, his son played every great position. He was a super athlete. Gary hated me, and which was funny that he hated me because I was best friends with his son. And the reason he hated me was twofold. One, I was a Christian, and my parents taught at a Christian university. And he hated that. There was something about that Christian family that he just couldn't stand. He just, he hated every bit of it. And and I just never understood. And I was just a child. But the thing about it is I'm Polish. And back in those days in the mid-70s, Polak jokes were the rage. I mean, everybody thought it was cute to tell the kid named Lewandowski a Polak joke. Hey, you know, how many Polaks does it take to change a light, light bulb? Just stupid stuff. And when you're 10, 11 years old, you have to listen to these stupid idiots tell you a joke that's that's biased against your culture and your heritage. But as a kid, I didn't defend myself. I didn't say, hey, go jump at a damn lake, you idiot. Why would you do that to a kid? I just had to put up with it. But this guy hated me because, one, I was a Christian. Two, we came from a great family. And number three, I was Polish. And he was so happy to use Polak jokes all the time. I remember one time... In fifth grade, we were going to have baseball pictures. You know, and you, you do your hair and you make sure your uniform is clean. You go to the end of the field and you bow down on one knee and you hold a baseball bat in a, in, a, in a position you'll never hold a bat in your life. And I remember the photographer said, tell me your name. And I said, my name's Mark. Mark, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, I want to be a surgeon. 
and I heard him just off to the side go, ha, 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 that'll be the day, a Pollock surgeon. I'm in fifth grade. I'm in fifth grade, and I'm being told by probably, other than my parents, the most important person in my life, my coach, that I am too stupid and I'm not of the cultural heritage to be a surgeon. Here's the shit on that deal. The shit was not the fact that that guy said it. The, the real terrible thing is it was embedded in my mind and became part of my life mosaic. Part of those little pieces that make up your life picture, who you are, how you feel about yourself, your confidence, your courage, your intellectual thought processes, all the things that make up who you are really are driven by those super influential people in your life. And my guy was Gary Logsdon. I'm so miserable that as a kid, I had to put up with that crap. But what happened is it burned in me. It burned for years to prove that son of a gun wrong, that I was somebody special. I could do it. I could point myself at a target and make it happen. But it took me a long time to get to that point. And during those years, between fifth grade and, say, ninth or tenth grade, I really struggled academically, and I struggled because of a lack of confidence. I was unfocused. I believed what that liar said. I believed that I was not capable of great things. I believed that I was not as smart as others. And he simply convinced me of that because of my last name. Now, forget the fact that my mother is English and comes from an unbelievable intellectual family, that my dad is a brilliant man who was the first one in his family to ever be educated and got a PhD as well. I believed that guy, and it hurt me for years. But... It turned into a passion to consume success, to overcome what others said or believed about me. It forced me to look inside for my confidence because I couldn't get it outside. Now let's fast forward years go by. I struggled a little bit academically, and I started to figure out that I was not that stupid, that I was really pretty bright. And I came upon another man. This is my second lifetime event. I was getting ready the night I got my MBA. And I remember standing in the back of the room when we were getting our gowns on and, and about to be hooded to get an MBA. And I remember listening around the room and everybody was talking about their PhD, who's going to get one and where were they going to go and what they were going to do with their life. And I remember standing back thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are so intelligent. I'm going to finish an MBA with a 3.65 GPA in finance. And I am the I have the lowest GPA of all the finance graduates in this room, and I'm looking around at them, and they're they got their undergraduate degrees in engineering and finance and biology and chemistry, and just you know they were just amazing people. And my three six five was going to be the end of my academic pursuits. So we go through the dinner, and then we stand up, and we're being hooded, and there at the end of the the room is a guy named Rennie Martin. Rennie Martin, one of the smartest people I've ever been around, just an amazing human being. And he hooded me, and I was so proud. And when it was all over, I looked across the room, and there he was. And he's a big man, a tall man, 
probably six five six six athlete, played uh, basketball in college, brilliant guy. And he took two fingers and he started to wave it at me like, come here, Mark, come here. And I thought, oh, no. Is it possible that I didn't pass the final and that he's going to tell me I didn't pass this class? So that's kind of that's the kind of person I just didn't have completely the confidence. And I think the confidence goes all the way to back to that son of a gun, Gary Logston, back in the day. And Randy Martin said, Mark, I think you ought to get a Ph.D. And my mouth dropped wide open. I think he could tell the surprise and the shock of my face. He could see it in my eyes. And he said, Mark, a Ph.D. is not inspiration. It's perspiration. And I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe I could do it. You know, the thing about it is, here's the most intelligent, powerful person I'd ever been around at that time telling me, Mark Lewandowski, that I could get a PhD. And from that point forward, no one could stand in my way. And here's what's so interesting about it. His words were so powerful because I believed in him so much that it was almost like a divine authority saying, you can do this. You know, if God Almighty said, you can do this, then why would even why would I even ask another question? Rennie Martin was like that kind of person to me, a person of such power, so much influence, so much authority, that if he said I could do it, how dare anyone stand in my way? It was a huge life-changing moment. I will remember it the rest of my life. I will remember exactly where I was standing and exactly what he said. You know, they say, as a side note, that memory is combined two things, that you remember something by repetition or the intensity of the experience. So if I've got something I want to memorize it over, I go over it and over it, over it, over it, eight times I'll remember it, or the intensity of the experience. If, If an experience is so intense that it burns in your mind and you'll never forget it, That is something really special, and that's what the Rennie Martin was for me. So we're moving on to number three. I did start a PhD. I had a young family. My wife was at home. We were doing everything we could do to survive, and I was given an opportunity to play golf one day with a friend who worked at one of the most prestigious country clubs in in the world, and he gave me a chance to play on the closed day Monday when country clubs are closed, and we were walking the course, and on the third hole, I laid down in the fairway and had a heart attack, and I was 28 years old. 28 years old. Think about you out there listening to this. How old are you? I was 28 years old when I had my first heart attack, and it caused me to stop and really consider everything about my life, everything about the way I treated people, the way I treated my children, my wife, the people I come in contact with, how I look at my own health, the decisions I make about what to eat or not to eat. It was huge. And think about it. It it caused me to think about life one day at a time, one year at a time, instead of thinking I had forever to make a difference. I didn't have forever to make a life impact anymore. I had only these few years. When I had my first heart attack, my physician said, 
you know, you'll be lucky to be alive in five years if you don't change your lifestyle. And, you know, my lifestyle was hardworking, going at it, eating the wrong foods, um, studying late at night, or up early in the morning, a lot of stress. So I had to rethink the way that I handle stress and manage my stress. I had to start reading things that helped me understand stress, stress management, managing myself. It was at that time that I learned that if I could take a massive project like a dissertation and break a dissertation, a doctoral dissertation, into three pages per day, then a 120-page dissertation doesn't look that daunting. A heart attack at 28 will change your life. I'm not asking you to you know, feel sorry for me or that it's not the intent it was simply a question someone asked about what were the things that changed your life the most. The first was a jackass that I played sports for. The next was a world-class human being that took time to mentor me. The third was something I never expected, and that was a heart attack. But the fourth is probably the most impactful of my life. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was May 13th, 1996, and I was sitting at a round table across from a man I deeply and truly respect, and we were, ne- we were to negotiate the terms of my employment with his company. I was to become a president of a small company, what's called a PBM, a pharmacy benefits manager. First of all, I didn't know what a PBM stood for, and I didn't know who he served. I didn't know anything about the job, but I really, really wanted to be the president. In fact, one of my early dreams of my life was to be was to be so successful as a consultant that by the time I was 60 years old, somebody would offer me the job as president. Well, by golly, I just turned 30. I had just turned 30 years old, and here I sit at the table being offered the job of a president of a pharmaceutical benefits management company, and I was excited. So, I'm sitting across the table, and the gentleman says, I need you to start early. I know you wanted to take a few weeks off and have a little time, but I need you to start now, and here's the amount of money we're going to give you. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, I can start early, but I need you to increase that number right there. And I said, I need you to go up $10,000. He said, okay. And in the back of my mind, I heard the words, say and. So I said, and? And he said, yes. And I said, and I want to have an equity stake in the business. In other words, I want to be a part owner. And I want to have 15% of the company. And I want to make, I want to get 1.5% every year that I'm with the company until 10 years. And I'll have 15% of the business. And he said, okay. And in the back of my mind, I heard the word, say, and... So I said, and? He said, okay, go ahead, what? And I said, well, what what I'd like to have is I'd like to have 7% of every dollar I bring in, not of the money you already have. Whatever you've got now, whatever income you have now, we'll just leave that. I don't want to touch that. That's your money. But every dollar I bring in from this point forward, I want 7% of the business. He said, okay. And I thought, all right, good. Good, good, good. I did a, I did a hell of a job negotiating it. And in the back of my mind, I heard these two words, say and. So I said, and, and then I just hung there thinking, oh, shit, 
what do I say now? I just said and, and I have no idea what my next point is. And then I remembered back. I remembered a time when I drove an old man to a bank board meeting. See, when I was in graduate school, I had this wonderful older gentleman named Eugene Swearingen who mentored me. And he was getting older and he couldn't drive at night because he couldn't see the road very well. So I volunteered, not as a paid position, not as a butt kisser, but just to be around this guy. I volunteered to be around him and drive him to the bank board meetings. So I would wait outside his house and jump in his car and drive him to the bank board meeting and wait out in the lobby because I wasn't allowed in the meeting and then wait for him to be done. I'd drive him back and he would tell me stories that he never told anybody else. He would tell me stories that were funny and they were crazy and that were maybe uh, not the right thing to tell everybody. But he told me a lot of stories and I remember one of the stories he told me and it came back to me at that minute. That second I was at the table, I I remembered the story. And I knew what I was supposed to say at the end of and. And I said, and I want it to be escalating. And then I paused. And the guy across the table from me said, what do you mean escalating? I said, well, if, if in the next 10 years, if sometime before 10 years, what I've helped do with this company makes it so that we sell the company, I want my stock to escalate immediately upon closing to 15%. And the gentleman across the table said, God, that's a great idea. I need to work that into my contract. And he said, okay. So we signed that deal, and the company took off. I started hiring these fantastic, young, cool people from where I taught classes and people I knew. And I was teaching at night. I would pick up weekend university students that were hungry to be successful. And I hired a great team. I hired my brother-in-law who was 19 years old. And he just he just took the world by the tail and started swinging around. as a great human being. And we started really doing well. And then the boss, the owner, he decided he wanted to sell us. So he sold us to a group in New York that was a publicly traded company out of Long Island. After four and a half years, we sold. Now think about it in the math. After four and a half years, I'd only owned 6% of the company, but I had negotiated four years before that based on something I heard on the road while driving an old man to a bank board meeting. I heard him say, make the stock escalating. Do think, Think about day one. As if it's the last day. What would you have wished you negotiated? And I remembered that, and I put it in the negotiation. And on the day that we sold the company, I wrote checks to all the equity participants, all the owners, and I wrote myself the second largest check in the group for 15% of the sale proceeds, not 6%. Now, why is that story so damned important? It is important. Oh, my gosh, it's huge, and here's why. It's not about the fact that I'm smart in negotiation or I had a great idea. It doesn't, none of that matters. What matters is this. In my early days, I took time to shut my mouth and listen. I took time to be around brilliant people and listen to their stories because I want you to think about this. When a person tells you a story, you're imagining it in your mind. And as you're imagining that story, it becomes real to you. It's almost like you were there. And the intensity of the experience, remember we talked about this. You remember, you you learn things from either repetition or the intensity of the experience. The intensity of the experience of me driving him and envisioning the story he told me made it part of my memory. 
It never happened to me way back then. It was shared to me. It was transferred from an old gentleman in his wife's Mercedes to me via a story. And when it became time for me to rely upon that story, I was able to reach back, grab that thought, and put it into my life. It made all the difference. Can you imagine the difference in check of selling a whole company between 6% and 15%? The difference is life-changing. The difference is huge. So my, my fifth most important life-changing experience was cashing a check for 15% of the sale of a company at 35 years old instead of 6%. And here's why it's so important. One of the other things I, I learned early in those days was the power of self-control. The power to say, we just cashed a big check. Let's do absolutely nothing different for a while. Let's put the money in stocks, investments. Let's do nothing. Let's pay the taxes on it and hold it. Here's the thing that made that so important. Now, now in my life, I have bankers calling me, asking me to loan them money. The other day I was sitting at the lake house. I was on the back porch and it was a, I think it was a Friday morning. I was there doing some study for some postdoctoral work I was doing. And I got three phone calls in one morning from three different banks saying, Hey Mark, how you doing? Um, what do you think? We've got, you know, you've got a working capital line of credit. You haven't exercised it. We'd like to do business with you. We want to loan you some money. Now, most people say, God, I went to the bank. I asked them to borrow, loan me some money and they looked at my financials and they turned me away. And because I was taught early in the, in my life, the power of self-control and not to spend that money. Now I've got banks that call me. Today is Tuesday. This Sunday, I'm playing an afternoon golf tournament sponsored by my bank in which they're picking us up in limousines and driving us 40 minutes to the, to the course to play golf. They're paying for everything. And it's not because I'm somebody special. It's because they want to do business with people who are, one, successful in business, and two, controlling their financials. They like people that have key performance indicators, track their performance, have great balance sheets and income statements, and have very little leverage. If you have very little financial leverage, or in other words, debt, they want you to have more. Not long ago, I did a, um, a personal financial statement in which the bank said, Mark, you have, you have, you have an unbelievable asset-to-debt ratio. You, you could borrow more money. I said, yeah, I could, but I, I would only borrow money to leverage it into something great, something that will really pay off. See, cashing the big first check is really important, but having the discipline not to spend it made all the difference in my life. I promise you, my wife and I still have the vast majority of every bit of that check. We paid taxes and we paid off our home. And other than that, we have invested that money in stocks and equities, and we have not taken a single dollar. Every time we have a podcast, I finish and say, hey, if you've got a question or if you've got something, send me a text. Send me an email. Let me know what you're thinking. What is on your mind? I want to thank the listener for asking me these questions because it gave me an opportunity to share with you the stories that changed my life. I truly hope that 
these podcasts, that the short videos or my, uh, my blogs or white papers are helping you because it is my way of saying thank you to the people in my life that were so generous with their knowledge and gave me their ideas and their wisdom. It is my pleasure to share these nuggets of true value with you, and I look forward to our next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mind Your Business. Please check me out on Facebook and Instagram and be sure to send me a message if there's something you need or want me to talk about. You know, the great motivational speaker Zig Ziglar once said, you can have anything in life you want as long as you help enough other people get what they want. What does that mean for you today? That means if there's something in this content that is exciting and really resonates with you, pass it along to your friends. Share it. Let them develop and become strong in their thinking, in their motivation, in their knowledge, just like you are. Together, knowledgeable you and your friends will change the world.